0: This afternoon we have read in great teal, detail from the book of Matthew the horrific details of the death of Jesus of Nazareth. We read how he prayed in the garden the night before in the shadow of his pending execution. We read of him asking the Father to let his cup of wrath pass from him, but, but even so, following in obedience we read of the betrayal of Jesus from a close and trusted friend. And we read of the ensuing arrest. We we read of the unjust trial that Jesus endured. We we see that he is slandered and vilified by his own people. We hear the roar of the crowd asking Pilate to release the murderous zealot named Barabbas and a call for them to put Jesus to death and death on a cross. We, We read of the mocking, of the beating of this man who had done no wrong. We we read of the torturous way in which he was treated, the scorn of men he endured. We cringe as we see our Lord nailed to a cross of wood, an unyielding cross, bloody and naked and lifted up before a ravenous crowd. Uh, We see all those around him in a cruel bit of irony imploring for him to save himself, even as he is there saving us. And finally, we read of the end, right? The moment when Jesus dies, when he yields up his spirit, as Matthew says. His life was extinguished, and he breathed his last. We read of, we read of all of this, and hopefully this has not lost its impact on us. As, as we gather here as the church on Good Friday, I hope this has not become a cold and boring story, Hopefully, our familiarity with this does not make it dull in our minds, but is searing on our hearts. This was, this, was, this was a brutal murder. This was an unjust murder of a man who had done no wrong. It was a horrific atrocity, and more than just on Good Friday, this should be ringing in our ears all year round. Um, we are accurately named sheep, though, right? We are stubborn. We are stupid, we forget, we are in need of a reminder. Focusing on the death of Christ on a day like today helps us to remember that this Jesus came to us. He was born of Mary and Joseph. He lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life under the law. And he was put to an unjust death by evil men and women. And and this in and of itself is a tragedy. This is not all that went on here though, right? Not just a, a, a murder, not a a mere unjust execution. that is n- not all that happened. So it's not merely a senseless death or merely an unjust act that should cause us to cry out in anger for justice. That's not, of course, all that was going on here, right We, we read in the account of his death the what the, the facts, the what happened. The events, but but we see in Scripture furthermore why. Why it happened. Why did this happen, and what effects does this have? We see the innocent man executed in Matthew, and we get a fuller explanation of its effects in Romans. Uh, Specifically, we are going to see what this has to do with you, what this has to do with me, what this has to do with you. How does this death 2,000 years ago affect you? And if this death does have something to do with you, what ramifications does this lead to? What does this imply? What does this press upon the rest of your life? So if you have your Bibles this afternoon, please take it and turn it to Romans 6. Romans chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. In this passage, we see a clear connection between the death of Christ and the believer in Christ. There is purpose in Christ's death described here there is an effective outcome of his death. The unjust and unparalleled murder of this fully God, fully man, completely innocent and righteous life, is shown to be the one thing that addresses our biggest need, namely our sin. The death of Christ has a temporal and eternal impact on the believer as he is united to him in death. So the death of Christ has a temporal and an eternal impact on the believer as he is united to Christ in his death. Paul connects his death directly to the believer, um, and in this, uh, Paul describes first the Christian being dead to sin. Verses 1 through 2, he is dead to sin. So Paul has just gone through an entire chapter of his letter of the Romans, unpacking the glorious doctrine of justification. Romans chapter 5, right? He's talking about... He's talking about the first Adam and the second Adam. He's talking about what Christ has done for us and how we are justified. He's describing how we can have peace with God even though we have rebelled and sinned against him. He explained how the sacrifice of Christ paid the penalty <clears throat> for our sin, how Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God. And, and with that, he has freely given the gift of eternal life to all who look on him in faith. What's more, this is a gift that cannot be earned. It is given to sinners because God is merciful and God is gracious. This cannot be earned by man. The grace of God is bestowed on those who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, who have repented of their sin and turned to him by faith. Nothing you can do will make you more or less savable. You can't clean yourself up enough. You are filthy, and God has justified you in spite of yourself. This is Romans chapter 5. The grace to sinners here is unfathomable. And it is because this grace is unfathomable, Paul can already start hearing the objections. So we start in Romans chapter 6, and and Paul is addressing this objection to this free salvation. So he he begins this chapter with a ridiculous question. What shall we say then? Are we going to continue in sin that grace may abound? Is it okay to go on sinning, since God is going to forgive you anyway? Why even try in this life? What what difference does it make how I live now if Jesus paid for it for me on the cross? All right, right. Paul rightly shoots down this bonehead question. Right, they're contrary to popular opinion. Are stupid questions. This is a stupid question, and and, and more than that. And we talked about this in Sunday school a few weeks ago. This is a little bit of a side, but. I think it works in here. When we approach God, we approach God on our face, right? We approach God humbly. We don't bro God. We, he's not our buddy. We, we don't come to God and, and, and buddy up to him like we are, uh, like, like he's just one of our boys. Um, but people, sometimes Paul addresses people this way, and this is one of those times he asked this question and he's like, bro, you are an idiot. He's like, by no means. This is a bad question. This is a, this is a terrible question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This question, he says, doesn't even make sense. It is inconsistent and nonsensical. It is right up there with the question of, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? Right? right the 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 question is fundamentally illogical because God is omnipotent, because God is all-powerful. God can do anything, and still logic applies, right? It's a dumb question. It's a bad question. The statement in and of itself has a logical inconsistency. Likewise, this is a bad question. The objection is, is, is bad. Those who are saved by grace are those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ for the redemption of sin. It is the repentant, those who have turned from their sin and turned toward God that are safe in the arms of the Savior. It is only a faulty and terrible understanding of what repentance is that could lead someone to ask this question. Look, to, to repent of sin always, always results in a life that has changed. One cannot have truly repented of their sin if their life is not marked by a discernible change. It is a false repentance. It is a false conversion. I think I've spoken of this before, but I have never heard of anything that is simultaneously as sad and as r- ridiculous as assurance in a false conviction, a false false conversion. A, a friend of ours asked us to pray for her nephew, um, she said he was in big trouble. His life was going off the rails. He uh, was mixed up in some terrible things and sin and rebellion. His entire life, his entire life was marked by this rebellious, by this, by this sinful action. It was taking him into big trouble, and <clears throat> um, his life showed not a hint of repentance. There, there was not a single indication in all of his life that he cared for things of the Lord. And, and. We need to be careful, right? We, we, we cannot arrogantly discern the state of somebody's spiritual condition. However, the fruit in his life, all of the fruit in his life indicated he did not know Jesus. There was no objective reason, looking from the outside in at his life, that he had trusted in Christ and had been changed, that he was dead to sin. Uh, our friend pled with us to pray for him, and we did and um we we we, as we were praying for him, and we finished, she said the strangest thing she uh, said, "I am just happy that that one time he came to church with us when he was twelve, he walked the aisle and prayed the sinner's prayer with the pastor, at, at least I know he'll be in heaven when he dies um that is that 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 logic is, is damning. I, I didn't even know what to say to her. This is a living, breathing illustration of Romans 6 brought to life. Uh, he was indeed continuing in sin so that grace may presumably abound. Uh, this, is, this is crazy. This might sound familiar in our American church culture, but this is completely foreign to Paul. This is completely foreign to the scripture. This is not at all what it means to die to yourself, to take up your cross and to follow Christ. Yes, his gift of salvation is free. and We don't clean ourselves up to get it. Right? You are justified entirely by mercy and grace from God. God does the work. You receive his mercy. You receive his grace. You earn nothing. At the same time, It is the repentant believer that marks out who is truly regenerate. Those who have not repented of their sin and trusted Christ by faith, their life is unchanged. On these verses, John Calvin helpfully says the faithful are never reconciled to God without the gift of regeneration. Nay, we are for this end justified that we may afterwards serve God in holiness of life. Christ indeed does not cleanse us by his blood nor render God favorable to us by his cleansing in any other way than making us partakers of his spirit who renews us to a holy life. We are saved by grace. It is free. It is not something we earn, and it results in a changed life. The order matters. When we become a Christian, we become dead to sin. We're different. We're no, we're no longer the same. We die to sin. And therefore, we are irreversibly changed. A, a Christian, a true Christian, is not one who goes on living the same way and, and sinning, but he keeps a, a magic ticket to heaven in his back pocket just in case. A Christian, <coughs> a Christian is one who has died to sin. That is what it means to repent. That it was what it means. That's, what, what, that's, that's part of this regenerative process. It has happened to him, and he has changed. Look, you die to sin now, or you die in your sin later. There is no in-between. Uh, let's be clear. Paul asks, how can we who died to sin then still live in it? All right, so, so, so let's be careful on the text here. What does it mean to live in sin? What, is, what does it mean here when Paul says that he who died to sin cannot still live in it. There's a few things he's not saying. He's not saying we will no longer as Christians sin. He's not saying your life is going to be free and unstained by sin at all times. This is this is ridiculous. He exhorts his readers in verses 12 through 14 to flee from sin, to live holy lives. Why would he need to exhort those who have died to sin to then live holy lives? He's encouraging them to sin no longer. So so dying to sin does not mean that we will never sin. He also doesn't merely mean here that we ought not to sin or that we shouldn't sin. In this verse, and and we shouldn't, right? We we shouldn't sin, that's true, but in this verse he's speaking stronger than that. He's saying you are dead to sin, not you ought to be dead to sin. This is something that happened to us already. He's, he's, He's saying this is something that's Already happened to you. You are already dead to sin. And likewise, he's not talking in this verse about slowly moving away from sin, as if it's as if it's um, degrees of sin um, between Christian and not Christian. It's it's stronger than that. We have to we have to look at this verse for what it says. We are we are dead to sin, and it's in the past tense. I I, I think. What he's getting at here when he says you are dead to sin is that you no longer swim in sin. It is not the defining trait of your lives any longer. We are no longer characterized by sin. But we are now rejecting sin and we are different. One theologian helpfully clarifies it like this. The Christian cannot go on abiding in the realm of sin. He cannot continue in it deliberately without distaste or diminishment. The moment you became a Christian, you were no longer under the reign and the ruling power of sin. You have a distaste for sin. It's not that sin is no longer in you. It's not that you're perfect, right? It's not that it doesn't have any influence or power over you whatsoever. It does, right? You're here. You're not glorified. You sin. I know you sin. I've seen you sin, right? I've seen myself sin much more than I've seen you sin. But while you may still sin, you no longer have to sin. You have been freed from sin's power. You are dead to sin, and therefore you interact with sin differently. As a Christian, you fight the sin in your life. You find it distasteful, and you continue to come back to the foot of the cross in repentance and faith in Christ. This is the mark of a true believer. They hate sin. They are dead to sin. They no longer are bound to sin, they're not locked and chained and a slave to sin. And their life is then therefore forever changed. Paul uses this imagery of death. We talk about it today on Good Friday. He uses this imagery of death to show us how Christians relate to sin. We are dead to sin. But then in verses three through seven, he goes on to show that our old selves are dead with Christ. Verses three through seven, we are dead We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. All right, we read earlier from Matthew about Christ's death. We we're reflecting on that this afternoon here. Um, and, and Paul here says that you, Christian, have been baptized into his death you have experienced an anagolous event that is connected somehow with Christ's death on the cross. As Baptists, we rightfully emphasize the importance of baptism by immersion as the, the biblical way we understand, the way that we are to obey the Lord's command. As someone who has professed faith in Christ, who has repented of their sin and trusted the the entirety of their lives to him as Lord and Savior who has embraced Christ by faith it is commanded to them to follow through in believer's baptism. This is the public profession of faith in Christ by the individual and it's the affirmation of the church that indeed this person is a part of the body of Christ. It, It is the entrance into the church and I think we rightly follow the scriptures as we practice this here. All believers are baptized. This is the healthy biblical view of baptism. And it is this baptism by immersion where we see a couple of explicit pictures of the gospel. Something that is missed if it is done by a sprinkling of water on someone's head. It's not just the cleansing of the body to sin. Now, this is true. This is true. We are cleansed from our sin by the mercy and grace of God that he bestows on us and and that is part of what is portrayed in baptism. But But it's more than that. More than that, we see this glorious picture of death and resurrection in baptism. We are buried with Christ in our baptism. We go under the water to a place where the body cannot live. There is no air. You are not coming up from that if you stay down there, right? The body cannot live. We are buried. We are dead with Christ in our baptism. We see in this ordinance a picture of the old man, of the flesh being plunged into the earth. And and in this, we are uh, seeing a picture of us united with Christ in his death. Christ died a gruesome death, and he was buried. And in that death, Christ experienced hell for us, as He took upon Himself the wrath of God due our sin, Christ has died, and in our salvation, we are united to Him in that death. Our old nature has died. If you are united to Him, in, to, to Him, your old nature is dead. It is nailed to the cross. You have been, you have been united to Christ in His death, and if you have been. Uh, baptized into Christ, you have been baptized into his death. Right? So this marvelous and gracious event that displays the already spiritual uh, inward reality uh, shows that you are united to him in his death and, and in that death your old flesh has been buried. Someone describes it this way, a Christian's old self is gone completely the old ego, the old self-understanding, the old stance of the whole person toward God and the world, all of that is gone. It has died. I died. And anyone who has died has been freed from sin. As a Christian, I, my truest self, really seeks God and loves his law and holiness. Because you have been united to Christ in his death, you are then free in Christ. Things are different. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you are an heir with Christ. You have been forever united to him, and your old self has been slain. Again, Calvin helpfully describes it this way. This old man, he says, is fastened to the cross of Christ, for by its power he is slain. And Paul expressly referred to the cross that he might more distinctly show that we cannot otherwise put to, uh, be put to death Uh, than by partaking of his death. There is no other way for us to be united to Christ and in his death, but through Christ's death on the cross and our repentance and turning to him by faith. We are united to Christ. Paul is very clear here. As As a Christian, your sin has been nailed to the cross, and it no longer reigns over you like an unbeliever, like it once did. This is why the initial question is so ridiculous. This experience, this this death of the old self is definitive. If there is no definitive change in your life, if there is no fruit of repentance, there may have been no death. There may have been no uniting to Christ in his death. The believer is dead to sin, united to him in a way that has clear ramifications for our life. Christ's death is always effective for the believer. It always accomplishes what God would have it do. The old man, the old flesh, is crucified with Christ in his death. And though we are not completely sanctified on day one, we are now free and we are different and we pursue a life of holiness. We are bearing the fruit of repentance, of this dying to sin, of this dying with Christ. The death of Christ has a temporal and eternal impact on the believer as he is united to him in his death. Because of Christ's death, you are dead to sin. Because of Christ's death, you are dead with him. And finally, like Christ, now we are dead no more. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead... Will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Church, we're we're here on Friday. Right? We're here on Friday. And I love being here with you on Good Friday. I love that we do this. I think it's good and right for us to reflect on the death of Christ on Good Friday. I think it's good and right for us to reflect on the effect that this death has on you and has on me, that this uniting to Christ in his death. We need to hear this. We need to reflect on this. We need to remember this all year. But friend, praise God, the death of Christ is not the end of the story. Of course, I'm going to say this on Good Friday, but One preacher famously said it's Friday, right, but Sunday's coming. The death of Christ is not the end of the story. And the death of the believer to sin is not the end of the story. We are dead no more. We are alive to God. And Just as the gospel picture of baptism has us going under the water, dying to sin, dying with Christ, we see also this glorious picture of the resurrection coming out of the water. We see this picture of the resurrection. We do not stay under there, but we rise to walk in newness of life. Death does not have dominion over us, but like Christ, we live. We do not merely die. We are dead to sin, but we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christian, you are alive, and you are free and you are no longer held in bondage to sin. Because of Jesus, you are alive, and you are well. You can live this life in a relationship with your Creator because of what Christ has done. You are no longer enemies, but because of Christ's death and resurrection, you can live a life unto the Lord. You can experience joy in this life, true joy, because with Christ you have been raised to walk in newness of life. You can love and you can be loved by him because you've been united to Jesus, both in his death and in his resurrection. He has died for your sin, and you have been united to him, to him in his death, and then also with him. You have been raised to walk with him. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We read about the death of Christ today. Uh, this, this reality should ring in our ears all weekend. Uh, I love this weekend. This should ring in our ears all weekend as we eagerly anticipate Sunday morning. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth was beaten. He was tried. He was executed, though he had done nothing wrong. Uh, this trial was unjust, but it was the sovereign plan of our good God, of our creator that loved you so much that he would die for you. It is this death that makes it possible to be united to Christ, to be united to a holy God. As you die to sin, you are united to Christ in his death, and you're transformed and you are forever changed. As you live, you live a life unto the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you on this Good Friday. Lord, we see the high cost of our sin. We see this free gift of salvation we cannot earn, uh, but on this Good Friday, we also recognize it was not cheap. So Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your plan. We praise and thank Christ for his gift for us that he has endured and given to us freely. We thank you for sending us your spirit that enables us to cry out to you in repentance and faith. Father on this good Friday we reflect upon the death of your son may us look may all of us look forward to Sunday where we celebrate the glorious resurrection. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.